If we have never met before, uh, first I want to welcome you here, but secondly, uh, my name is James. I am the associate pastor here. Now, the week leading up to Easter, I went to Sobeys to pick up some groceries, and so I get all of the items that we need. I get in line, I get to the cashier, and as he's ringing me through, um, I notice that right there on his arm, he's got a tattoo, and it says uh, Philippians. And so I say, ah, oh, cool, well, what verse is on your arm, man? And he says, it's, it's Philippians 4.13. I said, that's a good verse. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. He's like, oh, how, how do you know that verse? I said, well, I'm, I'm a pastor at Halifax Christian Church, just in Clayton Park, so I spend a lot of time in Scripture. It's kind of one of the things I do. And so he's like, oh, oh, really? And, and we talked a little bit about, a little bit about church and, and Christianity and all this stuff. And then all of a sudden, kind of, I don't know if it's this moment of confession for him, he says to me, I know tattoos are sinful, but I, I really like that verse. And so... I'm going, okay, Spirit, give me the right words to say in this moment. And so I say, you're dang right they're sinful. <laughs> Repent. Actually, I didn't say that. I said, you know what, man? I don't make a huge big deal about tattoos because, I mean, even within Christianity, there's a lot of debate about it. There's some people who look at that verse in Leviticus and they go, yeah, it's sinful. Um, God says not to do it. But then there's people who look at that very same verse and say, no, that was Old Covenant. That was for the Jewish people. Um, that is not binding on Christians and so more of a heart issue. Then there's others who go to an extreme, I would say, and they say in the book of Revelation, you see Jesus returns and he's got uh, tattoos on his thighs that say, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And I'll say, I think they're stretching that one. Now, um, don't go home and say, like, James told me I could get a tattoo. Here's my reasons why um, I'll get in trouble or something like that. But, but this guy's like, oh, cool. I didn't, I didn't know about that verse in Revelation. And, and so we talk a bit more. And then all of a sudden he says, um, hopefully Jesus returns soon. I hope he, he comes back soon. Now, I understand that I am being that guy everybody hates to be behind in line. That guy that keeps the cashier talking because as he talks, he stops working. But he's just said something I'm not going to let go. I'm just like, I can't leave that one alone. And so I go, why do you hope Jesus returns soon? Like, what do you mean by that? And he goes, well, the world is so messed up, so broken. I said, yeah, uh, sin has done that, but, but Jesus does give us hope. He's like, yeah. And so at this point, he's finished me, ringing me through. All the groceries are in the cart. And he's like, have a great day. And I'm like, you, you didn't ask me to pay. Um, as, as much as I'd like free groceries, bud, I told you I'm a Christian. I'm a pastor. I really can't do this kind of conscience thing. And so I was like, I got to pay you. And he's like, oh yeah. And so I'm paying and he sees my wallet. He goes, do you have a business card? And I say, yep. And I give it to him. And so I'm about to go away. He's sending me away for the second time. Now, when people find out you're a pastor, there's usually two reactions. The first one is they stop talking. It gets really awkward, and they're like, I need to get away from you. Um, that's just one thing that happens. I don't know if you know. But then the other one is people become religious. And so this guy went with that route, and he's like, you have a blessed day, pastor. And I'm like, you have a good one. And so I, I leave. I put my groceries in the car. Um, I'm driving home, and I can't shake what he said. Hopefully, Jesus returns soon. Hopefully, he comes back soon. Because here's the thing. When I was talking with him, I, I didn't get the impression that he was a person of, of faith, really. Because I said, where do you attend worship? 
what, what church do you attend? He goes, ah, I haven't gone to a church in years. And he's saying things like, I know I need to pray more in order to get into heaven. And I'm like, ugh. Um, and so he's talking about these things. And so I can't shake it because I'm like, are you ready for that day? Do you know what that day is going to bring when Christ returns? Because scripture, it says it's either going to be better than your best day here on earth, or it's going to be far worse than your worst day on earth. Now I understand, especially in our culture, as soon as I start talking about Christ's return, judgment, heaven, hell, condemnation, there are people who roll their eyes and think I'm ridiculous. They will go, I can't believe you still believe that. You buy into all of that stuff. I mean, there might be people here this morning who um, maybe you're here for the first time, maybe you keep coming back, and you're like, you know what? I like the worship music. It's great. I like the friendly people, except for that one person who's not friendly. I won't tell you who it is. I'm not going to call you out. Um, I, I like the moral teachings that you guys give. I like that you're giving my children moral teachings. But as soon as you start talking about um, Christ's return, heaven, hell, judgment, condemnation, you sound crazy. I, I think you're getting into some weird Kool-Aid or something like that, and you don't like it. It may make you uncomfortable. Now, first off, what I want to say is I'm glad that you're here. You're more than welcome to be here. We love that you're here. But here's the thing. Scripture talks about these things as a reality. And so I can't in good conscience ignore those things for the sake of comfort because Scripture says they have eternal implications. Now, wrestling with or doubting Christ's return, judgment, heaven, hell, condemnation, all of that, um, that's not something new to us 2,000 years since Christ has ascended into heaven. Um, you may sincerely have questions. Is Jesus going to return again? Is that for real? When is he going to return. Now, even um, 30 to 35 years after Christ had ascended into heaven, there were people who were going, where's Jesus? When's Jesus coming back? Is he coming back? And so we're going to jump in. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4 is where we're going to start. And so this is the apostle Peter. He writes, most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come, mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. Now, based off what you read earlier in Peter's letter, we get the idea that these scoffers, these mockers, are false teachers who've made their way into the church. And so they make fun of the teachings of um, Peter and the other apostles in regards to Jesus Christ, morality, judgment, accountability. And so these false teachers have come into the church and they're saying, we have superior knowledge. We know things that the disciples of Jesus, these apostles, don't know. God's revealed it to us. And so they're teaching this. We go, how are there false teachers in the church so easily? Well, Scripture would call these false teachers ravenous wolves amongst God's sheep. They see an easy opportunity to go into a group that is already established, the church. They can go in and they can begin teaching. And it's a spot where they can gain influence easily, um, a platform, maybe wealth. They can just influence a whole bunch of people who are already gathered. And so they, they begin undermining the teaching of the apostles with heresy. And so we're going, how, does the, how do these Christians accept it? Well, here's the thing. They don't have the word of God as easily accessible as we do. They don't have it bound together in a Bible like we do. 
There's also Christians of all different maturities in the church. Some who, who knew scripture well, then there's others who don't. And so you get these false teachers, they come in and they start teaching things and they're like, I've heard that word before and that, that sounds kind of familiar. Uh, and, and I mean, he's confident in what he's saying, so he must be teaching truth. Now you have guys like the Apostle Peter, the Apostle John, you have the Apostle Paul, who in their letters recognize these false teachers for what they are. They call them out They say that when Christ returns, these false teachers are going to be judged by Christ. Now, these false teachers, they hear that, and they're going, where's Jesus? They scoff, they mock this idea that Christ is going to return, and there's going to be judgment. And so Peter is listing their arguments in verses 3 and 4 that we already read against um, Christ's return. They're, They're attempting to create doubt in the church that Jesus is going to return to judge. And so the first part of their argument is they say everything goes on as it always has. Since it hasn't happened yet, it's probably not going to happen. And this is kind of funny because it's like 30 to 35 years after Christ has ascended. We're back like 2,000 years later. We're like, that's nothing. 30 to 35 years? Try waiting 2,000. Um, Their second argument is kind of found in verses 5 and 6. They go a bit further and they say creation... The world is not subject to divine intervention, that God does not get involved in the affairs of man. They're saying that since the time of their ancestors, probably the Old Testament patriarchs, since the the dawn of creation, everything goes on as it always has. Nothing has changed. God does not intervene. And so they're arguing that um, creation and the world are just running on their own without God doing anything. So think of it this way. They say God builds the machine, and then God presses the button that starts the engine, turns the key that starts the, the motor, whatever it is, and creation's just running along, and God doesn't have to do any maintenance. God doesn't have to intervene in any way. And so people will make similar arguments today. There's, there's similar beliefs. We call this deism. God created it, but God does not get involved in the affairs of man. And so the arguments these false teachers, they're making, they, they sound convincing at first, but when you start to look at them, when you start to break them down, they, they quickly fall apart. Now, I've referenced uh, this guy's book before, and I'm going to reference it again because it's really good. Um, it's called Tactics by Gregory Kukul. If you want to read a book about kind of how to defend your faith, this is a book I'd highly recommend. But he writes this. If Christianity is the truth, no matter how convincing the other side sounds at first, there will always be a fly in the ointment somewhere. A mistaken thinking, a wayward fact, an unjustified conclusion. Keep looking for it. Sooner or later, it will show up. Now, what Kukul is saying is when, when people start talking about their worldview, their faith, if they're attacking um, Christianity or anything like that, he's saying, listen to what they say. Ask good questions. Ask them to explain it further, what they believe, what they mean, defend something they've just said. Because a lot of the time, these arguments that are made against Christianity or God by opponents, they sound solid at first, but once you start to think them through, play them out, they begin to fall apart really quick. Oftentimes, people are simply repeating something they've heard another person say before, but they actually haven't put in the work to examine whether it's true or not. They haven't studied it. 
Now, I say the same thing. We, we can't just point our fingers at them and say, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. We, as the church, need to know why we believe what we believe. We need to be able to explain it. Now, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 5 and 7, the apostle Peter, he points out the scoffer's mistake in the thinking, the things that they overlook. And so verses 5 and 7, Peter says, They deliberately forget that God made the heavens by the word of his command. And he brought the earth out from the water and surrounded it with water. Then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. Now, Peter's beginning to refute their arguments. And so he's saying they deliberately forgot Um, In other words, when they're making their arguments, they're brushing over some things that they know to be true. They don't want to face up to the fallacy within their arguments or say anything that could make their arguments weaker, so they ignore or they omit certain details. And Peter's going, you know what? God has intervened, and he gives an example. He could give many examples, but he chooses to go with one. And we can find the original account of it in Genesis chapter 6, verses 11 through 13. It's the story of Noah. And verse 11, it says, God saw that the earth had become corrupt and was filled with violence. God observed all this corruption in the world, for everyone on earth was corrupt. So God said to Noah, I have decided to destroy all living creatures, for they have filled the earth with violence. Yes, I will wipe them all out along with the earth. And so the reason Peter chooses Noah is kind of twofold. One, it shows that God does intervene in human affairs. He got involved there, but also God judges sin. But Peter, I mean, he could give a ton of examples. He could keep going. Like he'd go, remember when Moses goes to Pharaoh back in Egypt, our ancestors, and he says, God's saying, let my people go. And and Pharaoh's like, no. And so you've got the plagues on Egypt. And then eventually Pharaoh's like, okay, I yield. And God's people are going out of Israel. They get to the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army's on their tail. God splits the Red Sea. They walk across dry land. Pharaoh's army pursues them. The waters come crashing down on Pharaoh's army. What about when Israel goes to the walls of Jericho and they just start marching around the walls, they blow some trumpets and the walls come tumbling down? I'd say that's a God thing there. He could go, what about the life of Jesus? All that stuff, his birth, that's God's intervention there. The miracles, his resurrection, there's some intervention there. Um, uh, Let's think about the time in the early church when two people came and lied to me. Their names were Ananias and Sapphira. And they said, this is all the money we got for selling our, our property. They were lying and God called them out. He actually struck them dead. And so Peter could give example after example that God judges sin. God intervenes ever since the time of creation, whenever he sees fit. Now, a major part of the scoffer's argument is the length of time that they've been waiting for Christ's return. And in verse 8, Peter kind of is making this point. You're going to make um, time one of your major arguments against Christ's return. Okay, let's go with that. And so let's read verses 8 through 13. Peter says, But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire. And the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. 
Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live, looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. On that day, he will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in the flames. But we are looking forward to the new heavens and new earth he has promised, a world filled with God's righteousness. Now, Peter is saying our idea of time and God's idea of time, they're completely different. When we measure time, we measure it by things that are created. But God is the creator of all. He, he, he created the sun, the earth, the stars, everything that we measure time by, God has created. And so God is not bound by his creation. This illustration is going to break down really quick if you play it out too far, so don't overthink it. My son and I, we like to play Legos together. And so imagine we build our Lego city. Um, and we build our Lego house, there's a Lego job, there's Lego cars, and we start doing this thing, it's like, time to go to work, oh, it's the end of the day, time to go home and sleep, and we just keep doing that. I'm not bound by the time of that Lego world. I mean, I transcend that Lego world, I'm bigger than it. Now, in a greater way, God transcends our time. He's bigger than it, he stands above it, and so when God stands back and looks at human time, He's going, that long age, it really doesn't appear any longer than one single day. And that one single short day does not appear any shorter than a long age. This is just how God views time. And so these guys are going, ever since the time of our ancestors, everything keeps going the same. And Peter's like, this is your argument. Okay, let's go back 1,000 years. 1,000 years, that's 40 to 50 generations. That's a lot of ancestors, isn't it? You know what God calls that 1,000 years? Yesterday. It's, it's not a weighty argument to use time against God, saying he decreed it, it hasn't happened yet. You're not really proving anything because God's perspective on time is different. He stands above it. Now in verse 3, Peter is talking about the last days. Now when you see last days in Scripture, um, what it's referring to is, is the redemptive history of man as laid out by God. When it comes to the timeline of the salvation of man, we find that scripture gives certain great events in the redemptive history that lead up to the final event, which is Christ's return and judgment. And so when we say we're in the last days, what we're saying is there's no more events really to come before Christ returns. There's nothing after that event except eternity. This is why we're in the last days. Now, we can look at redemptive history, and we see that God is good to his word because of his track record. If you read scripture, you see God made promises through prophecies that he was going to do certain things. That a child would be born of a woman who would save God's people. This child's born. His name is Jesus. This child would be um, put to death, die a criminal's death. Jesus dies a criminal's death. This child, though, it would, he would live again. He would be resurrected Jesus is resurrected. And we see that God comes through on his promises. And so when we, we look at that, that, that Christ is going to return someday to judge the earth, I mean, we're kind of betting against the odds to say, no, he's not. Like, I mean, his, his history proves that God does what he's going, he says he's going to do. And so Peter's writing, he's saying this last day, it's going to be coming like, unexpectedly like a thief. I don't know if you've ever had somebody break into your house, but odds are they did not 
schedule a day that works for you. They, they kind of go for the element of surprise, right? They don't really care about your, your schedule. It's kind of what's working for them. And so God's purposes in his return are bigger than what is convenient for us. Now, in Mark chapter 13, Jesus talks about this day. And he says, No one knows the day or hour when these things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. And since you don't know when that time will come, be on guard, stay alert. And Jesus is like, I don't know when it is, but, but just be ready. Now, unfortunately, there are people who ignore that verse and they, they like to practice what is called date setting. They say, this is when Christ's return is going to be. This is when the last day of uh, the humanity is going to be. And so they look at scripture and they look at current events and they say, because of such and such a scripture and such and such an event, the last day, the return of Christ is going to be on such and such a date. And so there's like a few guys who just like to do this over and over again. They say, it's going to be on this date. That date comes and goes They're like, oh, I did, I did bad math. It's actually going to be this date. Oh, I got it wrong again. No, it's going to be this date. And they keep getting it wrong over and over again. And Jesus is saying, no one knows. Now, there's people who like to, to read verses 7 and 10. And it's referring to the fire. And it's this great fire, something terrible. And, and they go, well, obviously that's referring to, to nuclear war. And so they'll go, well, look at things with North Korea. That's, that's getting bad. Look at things with Russia. That's not very good. Look at things with Iran. Oh, no. Um, and, and so they look at these things and go, oh, the end is coming soon. Now, I know this sounds weird, but we can kind of take comfort in that they were saying the same thing during the Cold War as well. They thought it was nigh. Here's the thing we need to realize as Christians and as people. It doesn't matter. The end is going to come when God says it's going to come. And God's timing is always perfect. He's not going to mess that one up. It's not going to catch him by surprise. Like, oh, that wasn't scheduled for another three years. How did that happen? Like, that's not going to happen. Now, we have to understand that, that Peter's using apocalyptic language here. And much of the language is figurative. It's not exclusively literal. And so Peter and John in Revelation, they're attempting to describe something that humanity has never seen before. Um, think of it this way. It would be like Noah traveling to our day, seeing a modern-day cruise ship going back to his day and going, okay, this is what I saw. He's going to have a hard time helping the people of his day understand it because he doesn't even fully understand what it is. And so it's kind of the same thing with Peter. He's trying to understand what God is giving to him through a message. You're doing the best you can with what you've got so that people can understand. Now, we could spend a ton of time talking about what that day will look like and what it will involve, but I think Peter's main point in all of this is he's saying this last day is going to end in one of two ways for people. It's, it's either going to be your absolute best day or it's going to be your absolute worst day. Scripture doesn't give the idea that there's middle ground here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, Paul writes, For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We'll each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. 
And so my point is, it's not so much about when, where, or what that last day is going to look like, but the question you need to ask is, what will that last day mean for my eternity? Each one of us has to ask the question, am I ready for that day? Now, for the unrepentant, Scripture says it's going to be a day of judgment, destruction, terror, fire. This is a day to be dreaded. Some see the word destruction, perish. They think the Bible's talking about this idea of annihilation, extinction, that you will cease to exist. Uh, when Scripture's not really teaching that, Scripture kind of teaches this, this idea that you're going to come to complete ruin. And so what we're talking about here is the thing called hell. And hell is not the loss of being. Hell is the loss of well-being. It's the loss of having good things from God. And so on that day, our homes, our cars, our bank accounts, our lawns, whatever it is, all of it will be shown for what it actually is. It's just material. And so this is why scripture says, don't put your hope in material things. Don't make material things your primary concern because in the end, essentially scripture is saying it's just gonna be kindling for the fire. Now for those outside of Christ, that last day ends in hell. It's described as eternal fire, eternal separation, eternal death, and all that God blesses us with is not going to be there. And we have to understand that right now, Christians and non-Christians, every person is living under what is called common grace. That God is blessing us with good things like the food we eat, the homes we live in, the sun and rain shine on both the, the repentant and the unrepentant. But that's not going to be forever now, for the believer, Scripture says it's going to be a day of victory, peace, acquittal, hope being realized, that God is going to make all things new and we're going to dwell with him. And this last day ends in heaven. Now, often in the church and, and just in culture, we talk about, oh, heaven's going to be amazing. How great is heaven going to be? And it's going to be great. But here's the thing. Heaven is not necessarily the prize. The prize is God is being back in relationship with our creator. God is the source of all that is good, loving, just, and right. When we get to heaven, it is God himself who wipes away the tears from our eyes. And so heaven is heaven because God is there. If you remove God from heaven, heaven ceases to really be heaven. Now, a lot of people are going to ask, and I hear this question all the time, how can a good and loving God allow people to suffer for eternity? How could a good God send people to hell? Why doesn't God just take us all to heaven? If he, if he doesn't do that, doesn't that make him unloving? We're going to answer this question, but I want to look at a couple scriptures first. We're going to look at verse 9 again. Um, and Peter says in that latter half, uh, The Lord is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. Jump down to verse 14. And so, dear friends, while you are waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. And remember, our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. Now, notice what Peter's saying there. 
Um, God doesn't want anyone to be destroyed. God wants everyone to repent. It's not a select few. It's not certain um, ethnicities. It's not certain social standings. It's not the most gifted. It's not the most beautiful. It's everyone to repent and be saved. And so God is not putting restrictions on who he wants to be saved. And so we cannot put those restrictions on it ourselves. Even if we're not aware of it, we got to make sure we understand God wants all people to be saved. Now, God does not delight in the idea of hell. God gets no enjoyment out of it. I, I don't like preaching on hell. I'll, I'll be honest. I don't enjoy it. But we have to. We have to understand that God gives us a choice in the matter. In The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis writes this, and I love these words. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. And so if you're thinking that God is waiting for that day, rubbing his hands and going, man, I can't wait for that day. It's going to be a good one. I'm going to condemn people to hell. It's going to be amazing. You got to get that out of your mind because that's not the truth. If that was what God wanted to do, he just would not have sent his son in the first place because his son is the only way we get out of this alive. And so God wants everyone to be saved. We have to understand God does not send people to hell. God saves us from it. He rescues us from the penalty of our sin. But it's a choice in which we ask God to satisfy the law's demand for our sin or we say, I'm going to pay the debt myself. And we have to understand, people, if God didn't give us a choice in the matter, those people who complain that God is unloving because he doesn't make us, take us all to heaven would then start to complain, you know what? God is unloving because he's forcing us to be with him. God is not giving us any choice in the matter. What kind of love is that? God wants us to choose. He gives us that option. And so for those who believe and repent, this is, this is as close to hell as you'll ever get. This is the biggest taste of hell you'll ever have to have here on earth. But for those who don't believe and repent, this is the closest you're ever going to be to heaven. This is the best taste of the full righteousness and goodness of God that you'll ever get. And this is the purpose of God's patience, that every day that Christ's return is delayed means more people can be saved. It's that opportunity. And so this morning, if you haven't made that step, if you haven't repented, your next step is quite clear. You need to actually get right with God through Christ. And don't placate your conscience going, you know what? God's not going to do what he says he's going to do. God doesn't judge sin. This book shows that he takes it seriously. He comes through on what he says he's going to do. And scripture says that God's good to his word. And so if you're going, what do I do about all this information? Acts chapter 2, 38, it would say, repent of your sins and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's accepting Christ as Lord and Savior. But if you're really going, no, I mean, what's actually next? How do I do this? Really simple step. I'm going to be out there after the sermon, after the service, grab me and we'll talk about what it is, what's next. But if you are a Christian, the mission of the church remains the same as it did when Christ came or gave it 2,000 years ago. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Very familiar verses. Jesus says, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. 
Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, and be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So God invites you to be a part of his mission to save the world. So the mission was the same for the the Christians in Peter's day. It's going to be the same for us tomorrow, the day after that, the day after that, until Christ returns. Now the question is, what do we do as we wait? Verse 14 says, Make every effort to live peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in God's sight. Lives that are marked with obedience to God, lives that are marked with a love towards God and a love towards other people, even those who scoff, mock, hate, persecute us, Jesus would say. We have to understand, refuting arguments alone, like what Peter is kind of doing here, that, that's not what brings people to Christ. I mean, it's important that we do that, but at the same time, I've never seen anybody go like, you've refuted all my arguments. I have nothing to give back to you. And so the logical thing for me to do now is, uh, I guess, uh, accept Christ as my Lord and Savior. Like, that, that doesn't happen. People are, are shown love. Love is what leads people to Christ. They are shown that God loves them, that they are valued to God, that, that they matter, that they're known by God. They were shown through loving patience that God has intervened on their behalf through Christ. And until that last day, God's patience means that more people can say, be saved. And it means a lot of people will see heaven because of it. But we have to understand that this last day, it's probably closer than you think. We're, we're not gaining time, and we're not guaranteed time. And so that last day could be any day. And just, I mean, I was reminded of it this week. We don't know when anybody's last day actually will be. And so there's someone in your life that you know that needs to hear the gospel. There's a name in your head. Maybe there's a few names. And there's no question if God wants them to be saved, but the question is, what are you going to do with that knowledge that God wants them to be saved? And I know I sound crazy, but God, I, I think God's saying, like, you've got to pursue that cashier. <laughs> like, you've got to go after that guy. Uh, like, even if his line is the longest, you've got to get in that line and just get to know this guy. Pursue that relationship, because I saw God's doing something in that And so if you believe all of this is true, you cannot sit on it because that would be unloving. God tells us how this will end, but he's also given you a role to play in it. And so we understand that God's patience today means more people will be saved in eternity.